Hello and welcome to today's Just Shopping Podcast. And today we are joined by Mike Gray, formerly of Skin and Jagged Edge. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, we're good, man. So, what's news? In regarding to the world? Or... No, we don't want to talk about the world. We want to talk about you and your music and uh, what you've got going on on tour lately. You got any new, uh, Well, I've just seen a new video. Is that a new video from you where you're all dressed up in spandex and... Well, I mean, if you're referring to the Shades of Grey project, yeah, um, which was an album that I put together throughout 2020 and 2021 through lockdown, um, obviously there was no, uh, there was very little interaction with musicians. Okay, so I, I just put together an album which was based upon my love of glam music through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and so uh, I just made the album like that and I made a video which I could sort of control all of it myself so as I sing and play all the instruments on the album with the exception of the drums I just played all the characters and so initially it just started out as a, a creative outlet um, I did one song called I Get Up which was uh, very surprisingly playlisted on Planet Rock and it gave me the confidence and the impetus to, to create an entire album and luckily, um, or unluckily, COVID gave me the time to be able to do it. So that's where it came from. It was just, uh, just a creative outlet. And um, to my huge surprise, some people seem to like it. Some people don't like it, but that's always the way. Yeah, yeah, you can't please everybody all the time, can you? It seems not. <laughs> well, <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> You know, I, I first discovered Skin. I was I was gutted actually because I was a bit late coming to the party. So, because um, I was a massive Little Angels fan, I missed missed it when you guys first supported it back in the early nineties. Yes. Um, and then it was kind of like I was saying to Terry, it, it's kind of like more word of mouth how you got to find bands at that time. And then I went to the Little Angels reunion, and you guys were supporting them. And I was at the must have been two thousand and twelve at the O2 in Bristol. And I was like, just blown away. I was like, man, you know, how come I, I didn't understand how I hadn't heard of you, do you know what I mean? Because you were such a phenomenal band. And um, I absolutely loved the music and I just fell in love with it straight away. I was amazed how good you guys were. I mean, we were, the Little Angels tour that we did back in 1993, those were the, the first shows that we ever did under the, the name Skin. We got signed in 93, but we, we didn't have that name then. And then we went to Los Angeles and we made the album and we worked with Keith Olsen. And then we came back and they were our first show. So the first show was in Cardiff, St. David's Hall. Um, and we were very lucky because the Little Angels uh, fans took to us uh, very quickly. And it was literally on the back of that tour that everything else sort of materialized. Um, we were treated um, well on that tour and the, the fans were fantastic. And then when uh, we reformed in 2009, Little Angels wanted to recreate that, that tour and we were very, very lucky to go out on it again. At that particular time, I was on the second tour, I was going through a horrendous divorce. Um, and I was emotionally broken at that particular time. And I don't actually have any memories of that no way. tour whatsoever. 
the whole thing is almost like erased from my mind. Uh, which is very unfortunate because um, you very seldom in life get to do something of that um, magnitude and, and uh, emotional connection. So it actually great, causes me great sadness to look back on that tour because it was a, a very dark time for me. Yeah, oh, it's a shame, isn't it? Yeah. Were you going like very robotic then, going through it? No, I would never say that anything I do is robotic because, um, I mean, an incredibly emotionally driven person. And okay. my, my moods will go from calm to explosive in a split second. Um, <laughs> so, so nothing is ever robotic. Okay. I run purely on emotion. Okay. If you look at me on the spectrum, I'm as far away from the sociopath as, as possible because I'm, you know, I'm just one of those people that reacts to things incredibly emotionally. I would yeah. say everything personally. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, you don't oh, mean to say everything. Uh... Yeah, it's a shame, it's a shame you, uh, you don't recall it because it was, I said, it was just phenomenal. I, I remember queuing up outside the O2 and there were, there was actually more skin t-shirts than Little Angels t-shirts. And um, and then you came on, and I was thinking, wow, I, I just wouldn't want to follow that. The guys were just so, so good. Yeah, I mean, we, we did have a, um, a certain chemistry between us, you know, and I've been playing music for a very long time, since the age of, since the age of 11. And I've been very lucky to work with some phenomenal musicians, particularly singers. Um, I've worked with Phil Mogg, I worked with Bruce Dickinson, uh, Matty Alfonsetti, but Neville McDonald is a very special musician, um, undoubtedly one of the greatest singers in the world. So I'm, I'm always astonished that he isn't as um, recognized as people like Paul Rogers or Ian Gillen, because on his day, he would take anyone apart. Um, and we, we had a lot of dynamic between tension between the two of us. It meant life or death to us when we went on stage. You know, people who know me well will tell you that I'm I'm like Roy King or I'm like Mike Tyson or whoever. It's it's my entire entity comes through this thing. Okay. And so when I walk out on stage, it's my life. It's everything. Everything to me. So um and never was the same. And when you've got those two levels of intensity going out, you know, you're going to live or die by what, by what you're doing. So yeah, not many bands wanted, uh, got, wanted us to go on tour with them. You know, and most of the bands that we did go on tour with, we do everything they possibly could to sabotage us. But, okay. you know, our, our anger and our drive show us through everything. Yeah. But I remember like on the London show, I was literally on the little on the second Little Angels tour. I was literally I think I was sobbing in tears in the dressing room, literally five minutes before I went on stage because I knew my marriage was over. Yeah. And I knew that um, someone who I loved very much I would never see again. Yeah. And then five minutes later you're out on stage. And, and people are saying, look, we don't touch, and we are giving it every, everything we possibly can because we always wanted to 
to succeed on every yeah. show. We wanted to emotionally connect every single every single show. Um, and I remember walking off stage, and then you just destroyed again. So but that's sort of one of the, you know some of the stuff that musicians have to go through. Yeah, you know we we tend to be very sensitive people. We tend to be emotionally fragile at times, but then we are the people that will run through a brick wall on the flip side of that, you know, so we're, we're a volatile breed and I'm particularly volatile. Yeah, I mean, well, you're putting your art out for everyone to see in you. Yeah, every, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, when you, when you start out as a musician and you're a kid and you just pick up your guitar, and for me, I was inspired by Eddie Van Halen and, and Randy Rhodes and Michael Schenker, and, you, and you, you're purely driven because you want to be as good as they are. You know, it's kind of, a, it's, it's like, that's the thing. You have no idea when you're in your bedroom at the age of 12 or 13 that you're going to then endure decades of abuse or you know, journalists who don't like you or rejection from record companies or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. falling out with band members, break up with girlfriends, break up with wives, you know, the sacrifices that you make, you've got no idea. And so if you do reach the age of 30 or 40 or 50 and you're still playing music, you have gone through so much heartache to yeah. still do it, to still endure that level of um, masochism almost. You know, to, to, to put yourself through it time and time again. It's an incredibly draining thing. Not only is it draining to you, but it's draining to all the people around you because many people will come and go. You know? and, yeah, it's, yeah. and it's always that love, love of music which is going to keep you going over and over again. Band member leaves, you have to teach them 16 songs. Another singer comes in, that same thing. And it's, it's um, you know, it's you have to truly love this in yeah. order to, to stick with it because it's hard it's very very hard yeah yeah i suppose it can be a bit soul destroying at times but on the other side of the coin when you're when you're out there and you're performing and you're having a great show it's so uh, you can be so ecstatic on you know i mean one of the things that i've learned through life whether it be martial arts whether it be fighting whether it be football whether it be music or art or literature, you're going to have to know that you're going to go through it. You're, you're never going to have, you know, it's never going to be easy, ever. And, um, and, and it's only your love that's going to go through it. So, so people say to me, you know, what advice would you give? And I always say the same thing, is, which is, you know, the people that are going to make it don't need advice. Yeah, they, need, yeah. they need anger. They need love, you know, because it's their own particular drive that's going to get you through it. If you're not prepared to go through that level of pain, then, then you're just going to fall by the wayside, you know. And, you know, eventually your ears will give way, your eyes will give way or, or whatever. You just can't play the way that you used to or you just don't have that passion anymore. You know, you see it on football pitches, right? You see, you see the players that are prepared to fight to the death and you see the players that give up. And that's a little bit like musicians. They go, they, they're prepared to go so far 
But then they realize, oh my God, for me to overcome this hurdle, I'm going to have to go through this level of pain. And, and they give up. But that's, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, some, yeah. people, some people only, if you, if you think about Randy Rhodes, you know, if you just include the two albums that he did for Ozzy Osbourne, you know, this is someone who died very, very young. And to this day, I still play his music and I listen to it and I'm inspired by it. But he has no idea. Yeah. He, you know, he gave us these two albums and he left it behind. And, and that's his legacy, right? You know, it's, yeah. it's one of the things that the musicians, you may only create music for a little while, but you may create something that lives for decades. Yeah. Mozart died when he was 35. You know, 250 years later, he still sells millions of albums. But he's got no idea of that, right? He's got yeah, no, that's right. He has no concept that he created something that will last hundreds of years. He died penniless, 35, before a CD or an album even existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think musicians just have to accept that all you're doing at best is contributing to this thing called music. And if you're lucky, you may create something that lives on for decades, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I, I was reading that obviously the, the first band that I, I'd heard you in was Jagged Edge. And um, I know you guys had some really good success and released a couple of albums. But there was also, there was a period as well when you were playing in UFO, I believe, as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that was... Um... That was the big change in, in my life. Um, you know, I started writing songs and putting bands together when I was 12, 12 years of age, and I was doing demos at 13. And, and so I always had this, you know, music is, is my life. It it's just consumes my every, every moment. And then somehow um, it all came from Metal Hammer. Um, Metal Hammer were doing a show and they asked UFO to headline it and they contacted UFO and they said well unfortunately we don't have a guitar player at the moment and Metal Hammer were aware of my entity and they they contacted me and said would you be interested in doing it and I said of course you know Michael Schenk was one of my absolute heroes and so Fillmore called me and, and said would you like to do this so we went out to rehearsals and I think we had four days of rehearsal in East London. And and I, I'll never forget the, the first moment because Phil Mogg came, the band had been there for a few hours and we'd been going over everything. And then Phil Mogg turned up and he said, okay, what do you want to play first? And so I said, uh, lights out. And he just sort of looked at me and smiled as if to say like, all right, okay, let's see what you've got. And, and we played and and it was just one of those moments where as soon as he started singing, I realized that everything I'd done previously was of no importance. It was like it was a new beginning because all of a sudden there was a world-class singer singing exactly like it sounded on the record. And I, and I suddenly realized, okay, this, this is the standard that it has to be. If, it's not, if I'm going to succeed in life, and I'm going to have to find musicians of this standard. Hmm. And, and obviously, you know, you go out and you're playing all your, 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 um, your, the songs that you listen to as a kid. And I had no fear back then. 
Um, and it was an amazing moment. But the thing that I took from it was, one, the musicians have to be as good as that, otherwise there's no point doing it. And also working with Phil Mark, he taught me how to write songs. And up until then, I just thought, oh, you just do a bit of this, you just do that, and you put it all together. But he, he explained to me in great detail how, how the concept of writing a song came about. And so from that perspective, it changed my life. Um, and I was very lucky that I got to see Phil a couple of years ago and say thank you to him for, for giving me that experience. And so once that UFO thing finished, then, um, then I went, went about putting together Jagged Edge. And there was a whole bunch of lineups, and we did one tour with Ozzy Osbourne uh, on the No Rest for the Wicked tour with a completely different lineup to the one that recorded the album. But as soon as that Ozzy Osbourne tour finished, even though it was the best band I put together, I had to get rid of all of them and start again because they just weren't good enough. So then that's when the lineup of Jagged Edge came together, and that was... That was all put together by record companies. Okay. Uh, okay. We Polydor Records. I was managed by Rod Smallwood, who manages Iron Maiden, and um, he was approached by Polydor Records and said, "We have this singer, Matty Alfonsetti, and we know that you have this guitar player. If you two guys get together, then we'll give you a record deal." And so we did get together, and we recorded one song, which was produced by Chris Tangredis. Uh, we did it on a weekend, on a Saturday, Sunday. It was presented on a Monday morning, and on a Tuesday we had a record deal, which which the press hated us for because we were perceived as a manufactured, put together mm. band. Um, we we did write some good songs, "You Don't Love Me" and "Out in the Cold." Are still songs that are played on the radio 30 years later. But the UK press hated us, and they destroyed us at any opportunity that we were given. But we did, you know, we went out and we played, and we do all the things that first bands do. We toured with Bruce Dickinson, Vixen, Thunder, David Lee Roth. You know, we had um, we had some great times, and we made some great memories out of all of it. Um, but ultimately, the fact that we were a put-together band and the singer and I didn't particularly get on um, musically or personally at any, any level. It was destined to fail at some point. Mm. And then when that collapsed, I put skin together and I got to work with the singer that I always wanted to work with. I actually approached Neville to join Jagged Edge, but um, he wouldn't leave Cougar. Okay. And then when Jagged Edge fell apart, Cougar had fallen apart, and so then it became time. Yeah, and and, and the rest is kind of like like history, you know. Neville McDonald, I will always associate with being the ultimate band member, you know. Yeah. he is. Um, he is. A, he was just a star. He was just a star and one of the greatest singers in the world. And when you walked out on stage with him, you felt honoured to be in a band with him because the guy was, was phenomenal. He, he was like Ronaldo or a Messi. He was always guaranteed yeah. to score the goal. He, yeah. You know, he'd score hat-tricks every night. He, did, he was just phenomenal. Well, I've yeah. heard you play guitar, mate. I mean, you're no slouch yourself, are you? Fantastic. No, opinions vary. Some people will, will tell you that I have no talent whatsoever. Really? Yeah, man. Well, I haven't met any of them, mate. I've got to be <laughs> honest, because I, 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 um, I saw you at um, Planet Rockstock last year. 
and um, with um, and you had um, Daniel singing at the time. Yeah. I can't, you know, have to forgive me. I can't remember the name of the other band members, unfortunately. But that was a hell of a show, absolute class show. I mean, because of COVID, you know, it's been very unfortunate because bands haven't been able to play and. And, you know, so every opportunity that we we got last year and the year before, we, we tried to, to take it as, as best we could. Uh, I'm very lucky that with, with this band, they're all phenomenal musicians and they're all lovely people. So, um, you know, when we get together, it's a joy. And, you know, as you can probably tell, I take all of this stuff incredibly seriously. You know, whenever... If you're playing in front of an, an audience, um, I give it a hundred percent. I remember watching a, a Michael Jordan interview, and he always said that he played as hard as he possibly could at every single game because there may be someone who's never seen him play before, mm. and it's kind of like it's, he feels it's his responsibility to show people why he was the best. You know, so he always gave 100%. And I've always had the kind of same philosophy. It's kind of like, this may be the last gig I ever do. You know, you only have to look back through history, someone like Randy Rhodes or Amy Winehouse. Well, you, you never know when your last gig may be. And so I tried to give it, you know, to the point of physical exhaustion at the end of it because it, it means that much to me. Yeah. yeah. No, you look pretty definitely. healthy, to be See, honest. I said, you're looking pretty healthy and pretty fit. Well, I, I try, you know. I am um, I was a personal trainer for, for 20 years. I'm a martial arts instructor. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I've done martial arts for 30 years. So it's a, a big part of my life, and the physical fitness helps my mental yeah. fitness, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's the one thing I miss. I used to do martial arts, and it is surprising, and I, I once I gave up, I started having like anxiety and panic attacks afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I, I never felt I could, I don't know why, but I just never felt I could go back to it. Do you know what I mean? I was always, I guess I was nervous that I wouldn't be as good the second time. Do you know what I mean? Like yourself, you, you know, you put yeah. yourself at the standard, didn't you? And then perhaps it was me just knowing how difficult that road was going to be to get back to that standard. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? The fear of not being good enough mm. is a driving force behind most people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, martial arts has saved my life on, on, on so many occasions. I can't really imagine it not being a big part of my life. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, but, uh, it gives me the inner strength, I guess. You know, when you're, when, when you're mentally strong and physically strong, you can, um, you can get through life a lot easier. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, definitely. So what martial arts do you teach? Well, I mean, martial arts, when I started out, was, you know, we all had our own individual disciplines. You know, mm -hmm. my discipline was Wushu Kwan, Chinese kickboxing. You know, but, you know, guys who did judo never fought guys who did karate. You yeah. know, we all had our individual little groups. And then, obviously, mixed martial arts came around, and, and then everything started to be merged. So, um you know, I'm an old man now. I'm 54. Hopefully, hopefully my, my fighting days are, are, are long gone. But, um, you know, you, 
I always say, I use my hands, I use my elbows, I use my knees, I use my shins. I don't know what that comes under, <laughs> but as long as I win, I don't know, uh, <laughs> I don't know anymore what the punch is or the elbow is or what the kick is. It's just all meshed together into, uh, in, into one, I guess. It's a bit like playing guitar, right? You know, when you start out, you go like, I'm a rock guitar player. And then you learn some country and western licks, and you sort of go, "All right, okay, that's actually pretty cool." And then by the time you get to fifty, it's it's all mashed together. Yeah, yeah. You know? So it's a little bit of everything. So um, whatever does the job. Yeah. <laughs> Develop your own style. I try to get it done as quickly as possible now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh. So you've got some um, some gigs coming up this year then. So I'm going to be seeing you up uh, Steelhouse, which I'm really excited about again. So you'll be up there again this year. Yeah, I mean, that came, that really came by surprise. I had no intentions of doing any shows this year. Um, okay. And, and so then when we played at Stone Dead last year, which was a, a phenomenal festival, um, an amazing atmosphere, and um, the guys who, who are the promoters for, for Steelhouse were at the gig. Um, oh, okay. and, and they saw us play. And then Mikey, Mikey Evans, he, he contacted me and said, would you be interested in playing? And so I asked all the band members, you know, would they like to do it? And they all said yes. And, and because it's been a long time and um, we put some shows on beforehand, you know, because we, it would be... Um, you know, just to walk out in front of thousands of people with a, a year off would not, I don't think it would be doing the band and the, and the fans justice. So mm. I put together three shows and there'll be, you know, my final shows here. And, um, you know, so we're going to play um, London at uh, Leo's Red Lion, uh, which is in Gravesend. We're playing KK Steel Mill in Wolverhampton. And we're playing the Waterloo in Blackpool. And then the week later, we get to play um, uh, the Steelhouse Festival. Mm-hmm. But of course, festivals are always tricky because it's always a panic. You know, there's no sound checks and there's that rush to get everything on. The weather can be against you, you know. So you just have to keep your fingers crossed that um, everything goes well and um, we don't let ourselves down and we don't let the audience down. So, uh yeah, so it, it, no doubt it will be quite highly charged and quite emotional. Yeah, I would have thought so. And, the, and you, well, you've been up there before, Mike, so you know what the weather's like in Steelhouse. It's, it's so unpredictable, isn't it? When you get up that, got that little dirt track, you just never know what's waiting for you up here, do you? Yeah, I mean, we've, I played at the first one, um, which was, uh, you know, which was an honour. And it was actually why it sticks in my head as being so remarkable is because both Neville McDonald and Matty Alfonsetti were in the band. Uh, you had two of the greatest singers in the world on the same stage. And so from my perspective, it was, it was just, just incredible to hear these two guys sing. And then when I played it years later, it was heavy rain. that yeah. year. And uh, I remember literally... I think about 15 minutes before we went on, we didn't think that we were going to be playing. And there was hail storms. And, and, and the, the hail was so big that if it hit you, it actually hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and then for some reason it just stopped. 
and we got on and we played and we did our set and we and by the skin of our teeth we kind of got through it but uh and i remember looking out and seeing everyone in in packer max and yeah. pack, you know it was it was amazing but um no i have a lot of respect for the guys who run the Steelhouse festival because they're nice guys um and they treat the bands very well and they're, they're good people yeah that's cool that's cool good good Excellent stuff. And you've got a, a another album coming out as well now, so another so on pre-order. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard work because I, I'm doing everything myself, you know, so, you know, to, to do all the vocals, to do all the guitars, do all the bass, it just takes a lot longer, right? Because I think when you've got a producer, you know, as you're playing, you've got someone who's basically telling you, that's no good. Yeah, that could be better. Yeah, that was fine. And you have like a relationship with the person who's, who's, who's making it with you. You know, that's one of the things they do. They, they guide you through the process. Because a lot of the times when you're, you're performing, you don't know if it's any good. So, so the way that I have to do it is I recall the whole bunch of stuff and then I have to sift through it to, to find out what was good. You know, like, and that and that works with like you know even the best singers in the world. You know, I remember when we recorded the Skin albums. You know, Nev would endlessly be saying, "Is that any good? Is that is that okay?" Mm. You know, and and so you you build a relationship, um, yeah. and you learn to trust each other um, in, in that process. But when you're doing it by yourself, you know, you've got no idea. So so that's why it takes so long. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. have, you, have you got a release date yet for the album? Because I know it's on pre-order. No, I'm, I'm still on song number three. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, you know, it normally takes me somewhere between four to six weeks to do one song. Because I have, you know, it's not like I just sit in, you know, I have other responsibilities in life. You know, so um, I, I just do it one song at a time. I release the songs one at a time so people know what I'm up to. Um, and, it, and every time I release one, it gives people an insight into what I'm doing and whether they want to pre-order it and, and, and support it, you know, because without the fans, I'm, I'm unable to make music, really. You know, uh, the last one, you know, we sold like over a thousand copies and that, that 1,000 copies pays for the making of it. You yeah. know, it's not because I'm making any sort of money out of it. Um, it just kind of covers the costs and and I do it now just to say thank you to the people that have supported my music for 30 years um, you know and you know every year it gets a little bit tougher right you know it's, it's yeah. harder you know there's I'm doing it all myself there's no management there's no record company there's you know and, and so you have to do it all by yourself and it's I'll, I'll be honest with you it's very very tough yeah yeah, yeah. But, you, you know, you've got the drive to keep going, so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, at the moment, you know, and, yeah. and it's always, it's like, um, I always have, unless you're going to be as good as you were, then, 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 um, the, the second I feel that I can't do it as well as I used to, then, then I'll stop, because I don't want to let anyone down. I've, I've been to gigs and I've seen musicians not be able to play the solos that they used to be able to play and and i've always just sort of vowed no i'm not i'm not going to do that you know kind of like if i can't play as well as i used to or better 
then then I'll have to stop. If I don't feel that I can perform these songs as well as I used to, then, then I'll stop, you know. The, yeah. the writing has always been the big thing for me. You know, perform, if, I, I'm more interested in writing songs than, than anything else. That's the thing I wake up in the morning and sort of go, what, what can I contribute to, to music? Yeah. Um, the technical ability of, of, of playing, um, that's the hardest thing to maintain. Yeah, yeah. To, to play at 160 BPM or 100 triplets at 120 BPM, that's like that's like like a sprinter. You know, it's like going up to to uh, Linford Christie and going, "I want you to run the way that you ran when you were 30 years of age," and he'll look at you and go, "Like, but well, I'm 60 <laughs> now." Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. your fingers are exactly the same. Yeah, you know, you have to maintain that level of playing uh, to be able to, you know, there's there's a part in, in the guitar solo of Look But Don't Touch, which sounds like a very simple guitar solo, but for about two seconds, I'm playing triplets at 120 BPM in a very, and it's kind of like, to still be able to do that at 54 without practicing six hours a day, yeah, really, really hard, but you don't know, you don't notice it, right? You just, and you could do like a much simpler lick, you know, and say, oh, then no one's going to notice. But that's not, that's not me. I, I want to mm. be able to play the same guitar solo that I did at the age of 23. Yeah, yeah. So in order to do that, you have to put in the hours and hours of practice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But do you think you'll ever be able to look at yourself and decide when enough is enough? Because, I mean, have you seen those videos circulating of John Bon Jovi lately? Yeah. Where his, his voice has gone? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about singers, you know, unfortunately for a lot of singers, is is you know they're going to deteriorate before the other band members, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because there's a physical side of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I sing myself, so I, I know I know there's certain times when you're singing better, and the and the more physically fit you are the better you will sing generally, you know, because of the breathing and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the physicality of singing. You know, but if you look through rock history, you know, the David Lee Roths, the Vince Nils, the, you know, the John Bon, the John bon Jovi's, they, Alice Cooper's, they were, never, they were never great singers in the way that you would say that, David Coverdale or Glenn Hughes or Ian Gillen or Neville MacDonald were, but it, it didn't matter because what they were able to do was connect with an audience. And that is what ultimately a singer is doing. That's his job. He's yeah. phenomenal singers, incredible singers, that will never reach an audience because they literally don't know how to connect. Mm. And so while certain things like Ozzy Osbourne or whoever, while they may not be able to sing like they used to, they still have the ability to connect with an audience. And, and that can't be underestimated because it's hugely important. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's the, it's the, the physical side of it. They, they just can't do it. They were never great singers, yeah. but that's not what their, their gift was. 
You know, everyone knows that Richie Sambora was the best, the better singer out of the two of them. Yeah, yeah. You know, but Bon Jovi was able to sell it. Yeah, he, yeah. he had the look. He had the charisma. You know, he had the drive. He had the endurance to put put it all together. You know, so they have to be respected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, without a doubt. But I, I just find it really saddening, to be honest, to just to see to see that performance. You know, I mean, he, he, to be honest, he looks like he's having a great time up there. Yeah. He's enjoying himself. There must be a stadium full of 50,000 people. They're all enjoying themselves. Yeah. But, but what we see on the internet is like, yeah, it's for me personally, I just find it really sad, you know, heartbreakingly sad. Yeah, I mean, I think when you get it, it's down to the, the consumer to decide. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it may not matter to them that he's not singing it as well as he used to, but what they may be doing while they're in the audience is reliving their life. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're taking about, them out. I remember when I heard this first time a download yeah. or first time, and, and you just never know what an audience member is getting from a, from a show, right? Mm. You know, it's, it's such a personal thing. I remember, I remember when I was 15 years of age, um, like the most important concert that I've ever been to was was the Monsters of Rock, 1984. I was very lucky to get, um, you know, get backstage, and I met Eddie Van Halen literally 15 minutes before he went on stage. And Neil Sean was there, and they were in this little cubicle practicing, and to a 15-year-old, I was just like, it blew my mind. And I ran, sprinted into the audience to, to watch. And they came on stage and they started with Unchained. And I remember that exact moment. It was kind of like, this This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm never going to put my guitar down mm-hmm. until I've played Download or Monsters of Rock. And I didn't. I literally, and 20, 10 years later, I did play. Um because I had that drive. But when you look back at the footage, David Lee Roth couldn't sing then. Yeah, yeah. It, it was completely unimportant. Yeah. Because to that 15-year-old, me, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen and probably still is the yeah. greatest thing I've ever seen. So you just never know what someone's getting from an audience, right? You know, it yeah, is, yeah. It, it's, it's so personal to them. So, yeah. You know, and he's, you know, he's out there doing it, right? Oh, he's yeah. loving it. I tell you. Yeah. He's out there doing it, you know, yeah, and, right. and, and so you have to give him a little bit of, um, he's still doing it, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, I, I I do find, I do think musicians get very, uh, it's, it's a hard career. It's a hard vocation. It's a hard life. It is. You know? yeah. and, and you do have to, develop the skin of a rhinoceros. And anyone who's been doing it for that long deserves like a little bit of respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, without a doubt. But yeah, like I say, for me, it's just, I just find it really saddening, so. Yeah, that's that's why I love going to, to live gigs. I mean, like like you said, you know, it's, because um, I, when I go back to the Little Angels gig, I'd seen him in 92, and then I got married and I couldn't afford to do gigs. I just, just physically, me and my wife physically couldn't afford to do anything. Then in 2012, my kids were grown up and they'd grown up with the music. And I actually took my kids to the concert as well. Do you know what I mean? So 
it was it was awesome absolutely fantastic so yeah you know I, I... You, you've just hit the nail on the head right it's kind of like the thing it, the fact that you had kids there that you created like this emotional memory between that band you and your children and it's it's something that can never be taken away you know and and that's what music does or that's what the art do you know it enables those priceless emotional experiences to to exist you know yeah. um no one ever knows what anyone is getting from a concert some of the greatest things i've ever seen have been in small gigs with, with not even many people in the room and you just yeah. oh my god I, I can't believe that i've i've just seen that um but one of the greatest things that you know the music has given me i, I remember being in a little rehearsal room in wales um and we were playing a song called A Little Too Late, which is a song that I wrote for Red, White and Blues. And Neville and Matty were just singing in harmony together. And and I'm playing and this 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 noise between and I look it's kinda of like, oh my god, this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And there was only four people in the room. And the fact that I can relay it to you now, like twelve years later, and can express to you how powerful music can be yeah definitely yeah, yeah definitely yeah you, i was pleased to see actually on um i'm not, i think that was during lockdown that you were working with mark pascal as well yeah mark's a lovely... such a he's such a nice guy yeah and he's got a great voice as well and um when i, when I see you would introduce him i was thinking oh cracking he's such a great singer mark yeah and a lovely guy you know it's putting together a band is is very tough and um i do put the bar quite high from what I expect the musicians and that's purely because of the musicians that I've I've worked with. You know, if can you imagine like imagine you're um, a football manager, you know, and to imagine you're the manager of Real Madrid and once upon a time you had Cristiano Ronaldo and you have Benzema as your centre forwards. And then they leave and you've got to bring another couple of guys in. You know, and then you realise these guys don't turn up to rehearsals quite as much. They don't know the lines quite as well. In your head, you're just thinking, it's not Ronaldo. <laughs> you know, and in my world, I've got, it's not Bruce Dickinson. It's not Neville McDonald. You know, it's kind of, so I have that benchmark because I had all of these years of seeing serious musicians. Yeah. You know, so, so... You know, I've worked with a lot of musicians, and it's it's really I'm very lucky now that I've got a whole you know a whole band of of people that you know they they want to play well and they and they and they they know the expectations that, that um, are required. And Mark, yeah. I've got Mark was singing for me, and Daniel was singing for me, and so you know it was you know it's very rare that you've got two great singers that uh, want to work with you at the same time so i was very lucky and they're both very lovely people yeah yeah they are yeah yeah i've been lucky to meet them a couple of times and they are nice guys yeah they're great they're nice guys yeah they are great yeah great band as well revival black yeah they're very good band yeah yeah, yeah they've got a new single out now as well haven't they? so yeah they're doing well there's, there's a lot of um great music coming out at the moment i think you know there's a uh, you know it's it's a tough industry, but it always has been, you know, so ultimately the strong will survive. And the music will survive longer than the band. That's yeah, the, yeah, oh yeah, that's sure, the, yeah. 
That's the thing you've always got to remember is that it's the music that lives on. You know, not nothing else. You know, when you go and see Foreigner, you're not going to see any of the original members. You know, even Mick Jones doesn't even come on stage sometimes. But the quality of the song is always going to be the thing that lives on. Tchaikovsky, yeah. Mozart, you know, you name it. Yeah, yeah that's cool. That's cool, huh? Yeah. Good. Good. All right, then. So, yeah. Yeah, I said I've been, a, been an avid fan since 2012. I'm just gutted I didn't uh, get to see you guys sooner, i got to be honest. So I got, got the tattoo as well, right? Amazing. <laughs> the, um, I mean, but that's the good thing about music, right? You, you get to... The music lives on and you can find it at lots of different times. I'm still discovering music now that, um, you know, that was created before I was even born. So one of the things I said earlier is like for musicians, your ultimate goal should be just to try and add a little something to this musical history, legacy, you know, that exists, whether it be bands like Montrose, Van Halen, Whitesnake, if you can create anything that will sit next to all of that stuff, you know, even if it's just one song, mm. you know, you, you, your work is done. It's been, it's been worth it, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What yeah. would you say is your, your most favourite? Well, I know it's going to be a difficult one because you've written so many, but what would you say has been your, your favourite song? Is that a probably difficult thing to ask, really, I guess? Well, that I've written myself. Yes, yeah. Oh, um, probably the one that is actually the most important to me is um, a song called I Get Up, which was the first Shades of Grey song. And it was the first time that I sang one of my own songs. Um, I've always written for the singer, you know, and um, whether it be Jagged Edge or whether it be Skin or whatever, you, you have a singer, you learn about the strengths of the singer, you know, what they can sing, and what they can sell lyrically, because that's also another thing. You know, if you had, if you gave Youth Gone Wild and gave it to Adele to sing, yeah. it's not gonna, great singer, great song, but you kind of have to marry the two together. And I've always seen writing songs a little bit like a movie script, like an actor. You know, you want someone like Al Pacino with Scarface, you're not gonna give it to Tom Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when when you when I work with Neville McDonald, then obviously I can write songs like "Look But Don't Touch" because he looked like a rock god. He sang like a rock god. So, and you know that he can hit all of the notes. Um, when when I was writing for myself, it was kind of like, okay, I don't have the range that, that they have, and and I can't hold the notes for as long as he can hold them, but I'll give it a go. You know, so I Get Up was my first attempt at, um, at singing my own songs. Yeah. It was something that um, I should have probably done a lot sooner. Um, and, it's, and it's been a challenge and it's taught me a lot about music, um, singing songs your own, you know, because you know, obviously you sing them and you, and you give a, a rough idea of, of the melody and the phrasing and all of that. And, you, and then you let them play with it you know, sort of play around with it. And each singer will sing it slightly differently. Even though you give them the same script, they will just sort of change it a little bit. And um, and singing my own songs has taught me, okay, so now you learn to play with them a little bit. And it's it's, it's, it's been a musical development for me. Yeah. 
cool. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, you know, but I like Luke Without Touch. That's that's one I'm very proud of. And yeah. You Don't Love Me, I'm very proud of that one. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been, you know, I've been, I've been lucky to write a few that, uh, that connect. Yeah, Terror of Strength is uh, an amazing song as well. I absolutely Thank adore that song. Thank you very much. I, I remember I was, um, I mean, that when we record, when we recorded the first album, we, we initially did it in Los Angeles and we had Keith Olsen as producer and we recorded a whole bunch of songs. And then when, when we came back and I listened to the, to the album, I just think, I just remember thinking there's, there's something missing from, from this album. We don't have the, the anthem. And so I, I went away and I wrote like another uh, four or five songs. And out of those five songs was Money, which turned out to be the opening track of the album, Colorblind, and then Tower of Strength. And so we were very lucky that Parlophone agreed to let us go back and record some more songs after the initial uh, album. Um, because a lot of record companies may have said, no, we spent enough. Yeah. Um, but they gave us that opportunity and, and Tower of Strength is, is probably one of the biggest skin songs yeah. and it's, I would say probably the one that is emotionally connected with the fans the most you know I've yeah, had definitely I know that song has been played at funerals I know it's been played at weddings and, and christenings and things like that so you know big song and um, I remember writing it you know it, it was a tough song to write as well because it has a strange structure, you know, because it has um, a, a bridge that only happens once. And then there's a, a section where it goes into chorus. It's a very, very strange song um, in, if you look at the arrangement of it. But it worked. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. Yeah, I love it. That's actually, it's one of, one of my favorite albums is this one, which, which, is, which is really unusual. Because the reason why I like it so much is because it's all stripped back. And yeah. a lot of rock bands don't tend to do that, do they? And um, I remember when I first heard it, I thought, oh, it's just absolutely awesome. You know, the acoustic stuff on there. And then, like I said, with, with Nez vocals, it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. Well, for, for me, it's like, it's what makes a real singer, in the same way it makes a real song, is that if you just give them an acoustic guitar, they can emotionally connect with, with an audience. I remember going to see Lady Gaga, um, and the highlight of the whole set was when she just sat behind the piano and sang songs like that. Um, and, and Neville, being a truly gifted musician for years, is one of those people that can just pick up an instrument, sing, and, and it sort of connects. Um, so he, you know, we were very lucky, you know, that, uh, or I was very lucky that I worked with someone that had that ability. And that album was, you know, it was, it was, um, it was made for him really, you know, because that's one of one of his strengths, one of his many strengths. Yeah, yeah, superb, it is superb. I actually, I was going through the, um, the discography, and I was a bit gutted because I, I think I missed a missed an album. Which one's that? I, I, um, a big fat slice of life, which I think was only released in Japan. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean. The way, I mean, it was a bit confusing back then because we were trying to get money from everywhere. And so in order to, to pay for the recordings, we, we granted a separate release to Sony in Japan. 
And as a result of it, they wanted, I think, about four or five different songs than on the rest of the world release, which was Experience Electric. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head what songs are different, but yeah, there's about five five of them that are on there which are, which are different. Yeah, because I, I was looking through and I was thinking, I don't think I got that. I was going through my collection, I was like, I haven't got it. So I went straight off to eBay, straight off to Amazon. I was thinking, oh, I've got to be able to get this. And they, they are still available in, in Japan. So yeah, I'll be... Yeah, uh, they're, they're very rare. You did well yeah. if you got one of those. Yeah. So I thought the other day that the, the live album was selling for £170 on eBay. Yeah. So it actually breaks my heart, you know, that, that some fans will be paying that level of money for it. And it, it upsets me that a band like Skin uh, was basically forced to stop, really, because mm. literally uh, the industry killed us off. Yeah, it's gutting. Because that's, that's another pride and joy I got there as well. Yeah, I mean, that's at the borderline, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the way that came about, we were doing a, a big UK tour and we were playing three shows in London and we just came up with the idea of just doing a very different set at each show and I think it was my idea so why don't we do the borderline show just a whole bunch of covers um, and so we rehearsed it just playing all the songs that we loved and unbeknown to us at the time our manager had basically arranged for it to be recorded um, and so this one-off gig, which was just meant to be something different, um, turned out to be an album and has lasted the test of time. But when you listen to that, you have to remember that I think we did one or two days of rehearsal for it at the max. And then we went out and did this set, which had about 16 cover versions in it. It was all one song from our favorite bands yeah. and it was on. You know, and it's kind of like, God, if you actually knew how little preparation we did for that album. Um, yeah. And and here we are, like 30 years later, sort of. Yeah, talking about it. Exactly. Yeah, well, we actually, we, we, we got a um, radio show and we actually closed out the one radio show with Mana Mana. Yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I mean, that was another thing. Like back in the day when we were with Parlophone, they were releasing all of these formats and they wanted different formats for everything. And we literally could not keep up with the demand of, of writing songs. So that's when we started to cover cover songs. Yeah. Um, and I was, before I discovered rock music, I was heavily into the punk. That was the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Generation X. These were the, these were the, the bands that got me into music. You know, that sound of the electric guitar. It was kind of like, what's this? You know, because all I did before that was play football. And so punk music got me into music. Van Halen got me into being a guitar player. And so I just had the idea of playing all of these songs like Pump It Up and Dog Eat Dog and Hit Me With Your Rhythm Sticks. And they, they were all my favorite songs from, from the punk era. Yeah. And how Manamana come about, I do not have any recollection. I know exactly where we recorded it. Mm. Uh, both Nev and I had a huge like of cartoons, you know, like the Tom and Jerry and the Looney Tunes stuff. So yeah. it was always kind of in our sense of humor, that sort of comic book stuff. Yeah. And I, I just remember 
Nev just went mana mana, and, and because we were all, you know, quite um, I don't know, a well honed band at that time, we just started playing it. Yeah, and that's uh, brilliant. But but it actually became like in Australia a big radio hit on um, Triple J Radio. It was okay. it was like voted like song of the year back in like 1994 or something like that. Brilliant, crazy stuff. But, yeah. Uh, that's I think cool. played live a couple of times as well. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, really, really I don't know if it's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant! I loved it because we we played um, a couple of couple of the skin tracks on uh, on the radio show actually. So um, yeah, but Don Chester was one of them as well, and um, and then we we had a very short amount of time at the end of a show, and I said to Terry, I got a perfect song for that. So uh, yeah, we finished it with that. It was great. You know, with Lubbock on Touch, how that came, we were we were working with Bruce Dickinson at the time. We were, there, there was a comic relief song that we did, Elected, and Bruce Dickinson was doing it, and he asked us to be his backing band. And, um, I mean, Bruce is a phenomenal singer and, mm. and um, an incredibly intelligent and driven human being. And he used to come to... The, the skin rehearsals, even though we weren't called skin. And he would just listen to us play our set and he would just be sat in the corner reading or whatever he was doing. And then when we finished our set, he would get up and we would do uh, elected and a couple of other things that we were working on. And as we were playing the set, when we finished Look But Don't Touch, he just looked up and went, that's your best song. And we were like, Really? He goes, yeah, that's, that's, that's the best one. That should be like your, your first single. And we were, at the time, we just thought it was like another song. Mm. Because he goes, no, trust me, that's, that's, that's the one. That should be the one that you release first. Anyway, shoot forward. We record the album, and then it becomes time to release the first single, which synced up with the Little Angels tour that we were doing. And the record company guy, who was the CEO, he sort of came in and presented all of this artwork and it went night song was going to be the first single. Right. And, and I was like, no, 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 no. It has to be look, but don't touch. And this was the first argument I'd had with a record company. I've had lots of arguments over the years, but this was the first big argument where I'm sort of standing with the, the CEO of, of Parlophone basically going, it has to be look but don't touch and his argument back was i'm the ceo yeah <laughs> we will tell you what the single is going to be which my retort was well bruce dickinson the singer of iron maiden who sold 50 million albums seems to think that this should be the first single so i said you're not arguing with me you're arguing with bruce dickinson and this argument just went, and he, he was going red, and I was becoming angrier, at which point our manager, Rod, sort of went, no, oh, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll sort this out. Look But Don't Touch was the first single, and obviously it was the, the catalyst, you know, uh, and probably one of the skin's biggest songs. But it just gives you a little insight into record companies don't generally know what they're talking mm. about, and you have to fight, you know, yeah. if, if you believe in something. Because you've got to remember that at a record company, it's highly likely that the entire staff are going to change within five years. 
you know, these are just people that are working on multiple projects that will give you a little bit of your time and make snap decisions upon a hundred other decisions that that they're going to make that day about countless other bands. But for you, this is going to be something that you're going to have to care about for the rest of your life. And, and in the case of look, but don't touch, you know, it it turned out, it turned out to be right. But I've been wrong as well. (laughs) (laughs) But on that particular occasion, I was right. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent stuff. And then, I've been on your website, and I didn't realise you'd been involved in this project, but it's a, called Schism. Is that correct? I said it right? Schism. Schism, is it? So it's, yeah. this is quite punk poppy. Yeah, I mean, when I came out of um, Skin, you have to remember that um, Skin, like Jagged Edge, we weren't particularly well-liked within the music press. You know, we were always a band that, um, I think we were seen as easy targets. Uh, we didn't. We weren't cool like the Wild Hearts and Terrorvision. We didn't quite fit in with what was being promoted by the the UK press at the time. And back then, the press were incredibly powerful. Um, we couldn't go any further as Skin. We weren't making any money, and and our popularity had, had basically gone down from selling out the town and country club to playing to like three or 400 people in London. So it wasn't profitable enough for the people within the music industry for, for us to continue. So so we sort of split up. And um, and at the time, I just thought I had to, I, I felt I had to reinvent myself and disguise myself. I've always had to kind of like disguise myself, even in Shades of Grey, I'm, I'm hiding myself. Because I always felt like no matter what I did, people would hate it. So I always had to keep finding new ways of coming, getting the music out there without people knowing it was it was me. And, and Schism, um, I think I used a, a pseudonym in that in that project as well. And it was all I've always liked punky punky sort of music, and and so I just wrote a bunch of songs for a singer called James McClellan. Um, and he was the kind of guy that could carry these songs off. You know, he had that sort of personality. And um, I wrote a bunch of songs, recorded it in my studio, and, and we put it out. And we toured with bands like Violent Delight and Farce, and we even did shows with Thunder, um, bizarrely. Um, and it was it was a very fun project. But you know, you know, it was it's. It was something that was pushed under the table and kind of forgotten about. And then I saw that um, it was being sold for like fifty pounds a copy, and I just thought, I just thought that can't be right, you know. So then I, I just recreated that, I rebranded it and put it back out there. But it was kind of like my first attempt at production, and so I, I produced everything. I, I I did all the instruments on it, and I just. You know, put it out under my own sort of label. So, so was that was that back in like 2009 time then? Was it? No, God, no. It was way before that. I was yeah. going to say if you toured with Violent Delight, I mean that was early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was like two. I mean, Skin split up in 2009, so it must have been like 2001, I think. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So long, long time ago. But it was it was my first attempt at yeah. total production. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Oh, I cool. still play it, you know, so... Yeah, yeah. 
That was good, isn't it? That's cool. And obviously the other project you were involved in there was Red, White and Blues as well. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to hear you play some of those when you're playing the skin tracks at the same time. And uh, Yeah, Red, White and Blues was um, when Skin reformed and we were on the Little Angels tour. We, when we reformed in 2009 and performed at Download, it was just meant to be a one-off show. You know, there, there wasn't meant to be anything beyond that. But then there was, you know, we did the acoustic album and then we did some shows and then we made Breaking the Silence. And it just went on for like another three years. But, but Neville at the time indicated that he couldn't continue because he had a job and stuff like that. So that's when I put together Red, White and Blues. Uh, Matty Alfonsetti had come over and done the acoustic shows supporting Skin, and that's how we reconnected. And and um, I'd written about 100 songs, and, and Matty came over, and over the course of a weekend, we went through 100 songs in my little studio, and, and we sort of narrowed it down to about 20 that he connected with. And then we went out and recorded the album. And then we went on tour with White Snake and we went on tour with Lina Skinner and Chicken Foot. We played Downloads and, and Choir Boys. You know, we did a whole bunch of shows and there, there was a lot, I had a lot of hopes for that band, you know, because it was, um, it was, it seemed to be getting a lot of um, support and it was selling. But once again, the musicians, you know, make decisions which kind of sabotage themselves. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that that project came to an end very, very abruptly. We were meant to be playing Download in 2011 or 2012, and uh, it literally fell apart about four weeks before that happened. Oh, right. just, just, just another example of how musicians can make some disastrous decisions um, for their own careers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Happens a lot. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a shame. I know. It's a shame, huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, the big question for me is then: Will we ever see Skin reform? Never. No. Don't no. think. Oh, okay. No, I mean the the thing, you know, as you can probably tell from the things that I've said, I have total respect for for Neville McDonald, um, uh, one of the greatest singers and musicians, and will undoubtedly be the best musician I've ever worked with uh, in turn, in, as a band member. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I remember seeing an interview with Gary Neville where he talked about Roy Keane as being this, at that time, he was the first name that you wanted on the team sheet every yeah. single week. And um, I have to apply the same thing to Neville McDonald. When you'd walked out on a stage with Neville McDonald, you knew that it was only ever going to be a hundred percent you know and when you have that level of confidence it makes you play better you know because you're you're right there with him and and i suspect that he knew that he was going to get a hundred percent from me so as a result you know we were a very powerful force together mm. um and i have absolutely no doubt that if we stood on stage together that is exactly what would happen again mm. but the thing is is i we were meant to be playing Download in 2011 and 2012, and he left the band a few weeks before that happened. And 
I'm not the most forgiving human being in the world. <laughs> and um, I'm sure you picked up from this conversation that it's life and death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have zero sense of humor when it comes to the music. Yeah. Um, and to be let down like that, and to let the fans down like that, mm. whatever the reasons, for me, is unforgivable. Mm. So, and I would just never put myself in a position where fans will potentially ever be let down again. Yeah. You know, if someone has bought a ticket or a plane ticket because they want to come over or they booked hotel rooms, it's like for me, it's sacrilegious that you, that you would ever consider that as being acceptable. Even if you hate me and you want to stab me to death as soon as the concert is done, you do not let the fans down. Mm. And that's kind of uh, my overview and the overview that my fans understand. You yeah. know, it's kind of, you, you don't disrespect the fans. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, and that's the, that is the reason why the musicians will never come together on stage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a shame, but shame. Yeah, but I, I fully understand that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like you know, you won't, you won't find, you know, the guy was phenomenal. You know, one hundred percent respect. Incredible. Mind blowing. I remember every time at the end of the, the concert, and I used to see him sing "Shine a Light," the final bit. I used to just stand there in awe of, of, of how good he was. Um, you know, but some things go beyond music, right? It's, it's, a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a code of life, you know, how you, how you want to go through life. And, uh, you know, the biggest pressure I have as, as running a band is not letting the fans down. I mean, I remember like when we played Stone Dead Festival, you know, when all COVID was going on, I was in the US. And I had to fly back to the UK three months before the festival happened just to make sure that I wouldn't get COVID. I was going to be away from my, my wife who I just got married to. And it's that level of sacrifice that for me was necessary in order to play the, the Stone Dead Festival because it, it kind of meant that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, it's just the way I go through life and it's just the way I approach music. It's not for everyone. Um, and it's hard to keep up with, but um, you know, I don't, I don't, I never pretend to be a um, an easygoing guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good. <laughs> but you did say that these are going to be your last four shows. Is that going to be your last four shows? Yeah, yeah. If 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 everything goes to plan and and I'm given my green card and I move over to the US, you know. Um, then the opportunities to play in the UK become very limited. Yeah. And, and the cost, right? You know, it's not like I'm um, Ramstein or, you know, I'm just like a little guy who just likes to make music. And so, you know, um, you know the cost of just coming over to the UK is as much as a fee, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for a show, you know. So it becomes logistically incredibly hard. Yeah. You know, undoubtedly, I will continue making music, you know, writing and recording. But it's just the financial logistics and, yeah. uh, and the realistic, 
you know, the realistic opportunities that will be presented to me. You know, if someone were to say, we'll give you five grand to play a show, then perhaps I can logistically make it happen. But if someone's only paying like a thousand pounds or 1500 pounds, it just becomes almost impossible, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah so it's, sure. not, it's not because I don't have a desire to play or anything like that. It's just literally, um, you know, it's, it's yes, yeah, you can't afford it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know what that means then, Mike? So when you go to Steel House, mm-hmm. if it's potentially the last time, I'm going to be following you like a like a shadow for a photograph, and I got oh. those and CDs that I'd love <laughs> you to sign as well. So <laughs> but for, for me, it's always been about the fans, you know? It's been about... So I've, I'm, I'm not someone who um, will shy away from that, and I feel honoured and humbled that my music is connected with, with anyone. Um, you know, so I'm happy to do it and, and, and uh, humbled that, that you connected with music that I've had something to do with. So my pleasure. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'll see you, see you very soon at the mountain. Oh yeah, I mean, let you know. Fingers crossed for for good weather and. <laughs> it don't matter. I'll be. I'll still be at the front. I, I'm one of those guys up there with the. I didn't even know you were calling. We, we, yeah, we bought a um, show. That's it. Yeah, you stick your arms out, so I look like a bit like a T Rex. I can't even get my arms out properly. I have to take photographs and everything. But um, yeah, I'll be at the front. Don't worry. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope that it's um, a beautiful experience and um, that everyone's happy and. And um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be very emotional. You know, I'm I'm aware of the the significance of the show. It weighs yeah. heavy. On, it weighs very heavy on me. Yeah, especially if it's your last one in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I want it to be good, and I want to play well, and I don't want to let anyone down. That's always a, oh, you won't. It's always an important thing for me not to let fans down. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh. Well, you never have, mate. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, I, I hope I never do. You know. Yeah. Well, good luck in America. Thank you very much. Very, very appreciated. And yeah, we, we all need a little bit of luck in life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I hope you keep making music. So. I, you know, I hope so too. You know, it's um, music is is uh, I don't. There's not really much to me beyond music. Yeah. You know, so uh, I can't really. I'd be a bit like a little bit like an empty shell without music. So, yeah. Well, maybe you'll meet some great musicians in America and you'll start a super group. I mean, you never know. You, ne- you never know, but um, it, 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 what's the word? I don't know. It's, um, it almost scares me, really, to think of uh, my life without music. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I will have no purpose without it. Mm. You know, it's really yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, I get that. We'll leave it there then. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to us, Mike. Yeah, it's been my awesome. My it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you, thank you for wanting to talk to me. No, I've been uh, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Yeah, uh, yes, really, really excited. Yes. <laughs> well, I hope I haven't disappointed. No, definitely not. And I said I can't I can't wait to meet you up Steelhouse as well. So. Um, I'll uh, I'll be there with my skin shirt on and right, uh, don't, don't be shy. I'm generally a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am I I am a bit shy actually. That's my that is my problem. But I've got a very very loud wife, 
and, uh, <laughs> and she makes up for me, which is brilliant. So uh, that's why he's sitting in the dark again. <laughs> I did say to you I was going to put my light on. Yeah, he said he was going to turn his light on, but he forgot. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, you know, don't don't be shy, and um, I'm generally very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to beat our David up. <laughs> that's great stuff thanks very much Mike my absolute pleasure thanks mate alright cheers